Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anu Nupadier, and thanks for joining us. When most people think of legal technology, they think of tech used by the country's biggest law firms or most profitable multinational companies. This masks the reality of American law practice. Half of attorneys are solo practitioners, and an additional 25% work at firms with fewer than 20 attorneys. Today, we wanted to explore how innovation and new technology is affecting attorneys at solos and small firms. To do this, we turn to an expert in the area of solos and small firms, Carolyn Elephant. She's the founder and editor of My Shingle, the leading blog directed at this segment of attorneys, and she runs her own practice focused on energy regulatory work. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. Yes, thanks for inviting me. So, Carolyn, I want to start just by uh, asking you uh, to talk about your background um, as a uh, law firm owner, as a very prolific blogger, and as someone who uh, puts a lot of thought leadership out there into the world, specifically targeting solo practitioners and small firm attorneys. So, I run my own small firm. I have had my own practice for I, 23 years, some, something along those lines, um, after working at government and as an associate at small and large firms. My firm focuses on power pipelines and properties, so I work with renewable energy developers and landowners impacted by pipeline infrastructure. And my area of energy regulation has always been sort of lagging behind the time. So just by doing things like putting up a website, I'm already like 10 degrees ahead of the curve. And my blog was started 15 years ago. I had actually been interested in doing sort of, you know, one of those uh, all encompassing sites for solos, the way the dot coms used to be like, you know, toiletpaper.com or pets.com. It was going to be like that for solos, but I couldn't figure out how to develop it. And I was able to get some help in um, putting it into a blog format. And when I started it, it just fortuitously, there were a lot of other uh, early bloggers on the scene. And so my blog just kind of became part of that handful of, you know, 20 or 30 lawyer blogs that were, you know, out up in front. And 15 years later, how would you describe your blog now and how would you describe the the evolution of your blog from 15 years ago to now? So in some ways, my blog has really hewed very close to mission. And you might think that sounds good, but I've noticed that, you know, in the Internet world, a lot of things sort of have to change with the time. So, for example, I've noticed a lot of people who started out blogging eventually transition to other formats like Twitter or Facebook. But I, my blog has always been focused on solo and small firm practice and, you know, occasionally nuts and bolts of how to do something or why to do something or how to market something. But I think it's also important to focus on the role that solos and smalls play in the legal community and also in, you know, with regard to, to the public. And that's something that I've always kept my focus on, even though there may not be a discernible audience for it. So I tend to, uh, 
lead the blog with ideas that I have as opposed to just responding to what readers want to to hear. So I don't know that it's changed that much. I mean, in terms of content, you know, there are certainly more, uh, there, there are certainly a lot of uh, newer things out now that didn't exist when I started. I remember one of my first blog posts was an article about um, how GE was outsourcing legal work to India. And, you know, now it's outsourcing, we're, we're past outsourcing, we're up to artificial intelligence to do document reviews. So, um, so topically, some of it has changed. Um, but uh, in terms of the, the format and the posts, uh, everything there is, is pretty much the same. It seems like the solutions may be changing, right? But the fundamental problems are still the same, right? GE and any other uh, uh, company, big or small, wants to do legal research, not just legal research, but legal work, whether it's document review or any other uh, you know, kind of legal work, cheaper, faster, more accurate, more efficient. Right. And, and the point that you make about the problems being the same, but solutions being different, I often have a feeling of deja vu when I read these blogs, blog posts about the law firm of the future or the future of law, because in some instances, I feel like I blogged about those topics 10 years ago. <laughs> and, and it is true that there are other solutions and it is true that more people are uh, receptive to those ideas. But many of these uh, ideas that are being portrayed as new are, you know, things that, I had written about and they weren't necessarily new when I wrote about them. I was just, you know, picking up on trends from other industries. So, um, yeah, if you, I think if one were to go back and look at the history of many of these legal blogs, you would see these same recurring themes over and over again. Close to 75% of attorneys are solos or work in small firms. Yet the discussion on innovation in legal tech is led by 10% of attorneys working at America's largest firms. How can technology improve practice at small firms where the majority of legal work takes place? So, Carolyn, I think it's safe to say that you are an expert in um, solo practitioner practice, right? You're, a, you're an expert in small firms and how small firms have changed and progressed uh, and in a lot of ways uh, stayed the same. But let me ask you a question that kind of looks forward. Um, how do you think solo practice and small firm practice specifically will change in the next 10 or 20 years? So that's an interesting question. I mean, I don't want to give the lawyer answer. It depends. But um, to start off, I think that part of the way solo and small firm practice will look in 10 or 20 years is going to be very dependent, I think, upon whether uh, the bars change the, uh, the prohibition or remove the prohibition on outside ownership. I think if we go to an outside ownership system, we're going to see solo and small firms very um, in a way that's analogous to what's happening in the medical profession, where a lot of solo medical doctors are getting bought up by these larger healthcare organizations. And I think that if the barriers are eliminated from outside investment, we'll see the same type of structure in the legal industry. And I think you'll see a lot of solos and smalls becoming employees of those organizations. But assuming that nothing changes, um, I think that, you know, some of the other, uh, Things that we'll see um, changing in the uh, for solo and small firms is first of all the, the I think the nature of the relationship between lawyers and clients. I think that because of 
technology and because of the vast amount of information that is available, we start to see some clients who are much more educated and who expect lawyers to be able to respond to their questions instead of telling them, you know, we've got this taken care of. And so I don't want to say we'll necessarily see, uh, you know, parity in all lawyer-client relationships, but I think in many instances, uh, they will be more like a partnership than legal advice being dispensed from on high. I also think that we'll see, I, I, I think that more people will be willing to do to uh, conduct legal business online, although that's not necessarily something that's new. I mean, like I said, I've been in practice for 25 years and I can count on my hands the number of my clients I've met. I've had more than, you know, 10 clients in 25 years. I, it, it's always, my practice has always operated somewhat remotely, if not by internet, then by phone and fax. But um, I think that we will see uh, in expectation clients, increased expectation of having lawyers available online, of communicating with them via email or through portals as opposed to, to postage and being able to, you know, to, to do work without having to go into the office to, to meet with them. And um, surprisingly, there's still a lot of firms that are very old school where the only way the lawyer will talk to you is if you come into their office. So we could do three different podcasts on each of those. You know, the prohibition on, on outside ownership, relationship uh, with clients, and more of this partnership model, and then the implications on a remote or online uh, practice. Um, and so the, each of those answers are, are fascinating. I want to explore some of the implications of uh, the lifting of that prohibition on outside ownership. And I want to ask you, Carolyn, can we expect something like an HMO model of law practice, kind of like in the medical context, if that prohibition is lifted where uh, dozens or maybe even hundreds of solo uh, offices and small firms are kind of run under one corporate umbrella? Yes, I do think we can see something like that. And I don't know that these organizations will necessarily be run as a law firm or maybe like a bank or a, a some other sort of corporate uh, group operating the firm. But I definitely think that might be one of one of the approaches. I think that so and, and I have some concerns about that. Just especially, you know, in, in combined with big data, because at least if that type of organization is is handling uh, is handling cases, especially criminal cases, you know, a lot of times a criminal defense case, you know, based on the data, you think it's going to be a loser, but or or it may be an unpopular case. Um, and I think that you know it's important to have independent solo and small firms who can continue to take at least, you know, some of the cases that may not be very popular with the public. But that said, I, I think we could see, you know, a group like that, like at least like in HMO or clinics, which, you know, handle the smaller things like, um, you know, uncontested divorces and probate and, you know, maybe some simpler uh, DUI cases. Uh, but then I think so. So and so the, the that's the one thing that kind of concerns me about outside ownership is getting to a point where you have people who aren't able to access an attorney, not because of money, because it's maybe cheaper, but because they're 
particular case is considered unpopular, just like there are times that people can't access healthcare because a particular treatment is considered experimental or, uh, well, it's considered experimental. But um, at the same time, on the positive side, I think uh, one thing that we'll also see, you know, a reduction of obstacles to is, I guess, what I call blended services. So services that a lawyer might provide in conjunction with another professional. So for example, a lawyer and a cybersecurity professional teaming up on a privacy case. Uh, Certainly law firms can and do employ cybersecurity professionals, but for many solo and small firms, it's difficult to have another professional of that caliber on, on staff. And so if there are ways to, uh, to, to joint venture on these cases or partner on these cases between lawyers and other professionals, I think that that actually has a huge benefit for clients. I think one of the problems with this prohibition on outside ownership is it really, it, it, it does guard against the, the negative, which is, not people not being able to find attorneys or, you know, or people setting up, you know, companies setting up these mill practices where people just get processed through like, like bean count, you know, like beans being counted. But I think that prohibition also prevents the evolution of, you know, these types of hybrid services that are really important in today's world, given all the complexities that we deal with. What's your prediction on this prohibition in the next, uh, let's say, 10 years? Is there evidence in your mind that that this prohibition will be lifted even on an experimental or test basis? It's really tough to call. I know that maybe five years ago there was a very contentious debate within uh, within the Bar Association, and there's still some people who are staunchly opposed. I have to be honest. I mean, probably five years ago, I was very opposed to the removal uh, of the prohibition also. But I think that at the very least, I would hope that I, I still think that unless it's challenged in court, honestly, it probably will remain intact. But assuming it does remain intact broadly, I think at least some states will carve out some exceptions. So, you know, they may make it easier for these, uh, you know, one of the problems with the outside uh, prohibition is it prevents these, these platforms, you know, where people can, you know, get, uh, get a lawyer and then they share the fee with the platform and it's considered fee splitting with an outside, uh, with, with a non-lawyer professional. So it's kind of related to the outside ownership rules because it gives a non-professional an interest in the, in the case. And so I think we might see some loosening up of it at the edges where it really has absurd consequences. I want to shift now um, to access to justice, rural representation, middle-class representation. I want to tie it into the prohibition in one way though. Uh, Do you think that if that prohibition is lifted, there's a chance that um, it can have favorable consequences um, to the access to justice problem in the United States, where um, it, poor people, lower middle class people, even middle class people, don't have the means to afford a lawyer, even when they have uh, a, a very reasonable legal claim. So I, I guess access to justice is such a difficult to define term. 
because I do agree that there are many members of the middle class who have difficulty paying lawyer bills. I think there's a lot of lawyers who couldn't pay their own bill if, if, if they had to. And so I think that's problematic. And I think that these organizations could, uh, you know, removing the, the, the barriers would increase competition, which would bring costs down. In terms of access to justice on sort of what I would call the lower end, people who are really destitute uh, or, or people who have smaller problems, I think that some of the way that that gets addressed is more through figuring out ways to eliminate those problems or making it easy, like, you know, making it easier for a person to bring a small claims case pro se than to have to go to an attorney or making it easier for somebody to represent themselves in, uh, you know, a debt collection case. And, and that could either be from, you know, having the courts provide more resources or, uh, you know, figuring out ways to give people, you know, just self-help books and maybe having attorneys who can come in and provide some per diem service. But I, I think that the, the, some of the problems I think are systemic. Um, even, you know, even some of the things like where people are denied benefits, it's often because they didn't get adequate notice because they didn't know they were supposed to, you know, they didn't check their email or their email service got cut off. And in the interim, they were notified that, you know, their, their public benefits were, were being taken away. So I think there's a lot of things like that. Like, yes, you can handle them through lawyers one-on-one, but I think it's more efficient to just fix the system. I want to uh, shift it one more time to technology as it relates to solo practitioners and small law firm attorneys. What technology have you seen? And you could you could uh, um, mention particular companies or uh, tools or general areas of technology. What technology have you seen over the last five years or so? that has made um, solos and small firm attorneys better, more efficient, more accurate? Well, I would say the first category is definitely cloud-based law practice management systems. I know you asked me about the past five years, and for people who are in tech, they're probably laughing, you know, oh, lawyers are just stopped at the cloud five years ago. But the truth of the matter is, is it really took that law. I mean, the first legal-focused systems, rocket matter and um, Clio, they both came on the scene about 10 years ago, and it took about five years for the profession to come around and, you know, just tell people that they could use the cloud. Now, I don't think lawyers needed to be told they could have used their own common sense. So as as a result of more favorable state rulings, I think that that's something that um, more attorneys have been adopting. Uh, Today, most attorneys offer some type of online payment uh, via credit cards. That's another issue that, you know, has, has been solved. The barrier used to be that you had to put part of it in the trust account or the operating account. And it's just like, again, stupid rules. Get rid of the trust account. You don't have to deal with something like that. But, you know, so they're taking... Um, taking credit cards. Now there are, uh, I see a lot of attorneys are using uh, these self-scheduling appointments where uh, people can schedule a, uh, a consultation online and even pay for the consultation in advance. And then the system will send emails to remind people to show up. And so it eliminates the problem of, of no-shows. I think you can use that system even without requiring people to pay if you do free consultations. And so, you know, I had written about those trends 
probably about five years ago when the systems were still really not ready for prime time. But, you know, five years later, again, many people are already accustomed to self-scheduling appointments with their hairdresser or with their trainer at the gym. And so, you know, or it makes sense to have it for lawyers. So that's something else that is, is another helpful tool. I know that more recently, I mean, there've always been document automation tools and, to be honest, I never track them that closely, partly because I don't have that many repetitive documents in my own firm, but also initially most of those document automation tools were only available for PCs in Microsoft Word, and I, I use Mac. Um, but now I've noticed, and they were also somewhat complicated to use. Uh, people often had to get consultants to install them or to train them on how to use it. But I noticed, you know, at the past few tech shows, there have been a lot of online document uh, automation tools that can be used, the self-help case or the law yaw. I haven't played around with either one of them, but they look like really nifty tools and they look very easy to use. And, and actually, the last category, since you asked, and I know your research tools, but um, within the past five years, the, the resources available for lawyers to research for solos and smalls, I mean, the research costs used to be prohibitive. When I started my firm, I couldn't afford Lexus. It was $600 a month, and it was only for like 12 searches. And, you know, this is $600 like 20 years ago. So tools have been around like, you know, FastCase and, um, you know, some of the other legal research products, but it's really in the past past five years, you know, that we've seen things briefs as part of research or just being able to access, you know, federal district court cases, agency cases. I mean, all of these things without having to pay $600 a month. I mean, that's, that's life-changing for a lot of solo and small firms that really improves the quality of the work. Do you think there's sufficient focus from the legal technology community on solos and small firms, uh, it seems that a lot of um, legal technology companies really focus on uh, the AMLA 100, maybe AMLA 200. Do you think they're missing uh, a big market out there? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I used to complain about this a lot, but the more I spoke with companies and even, you know, in my own experience, I mean, solo, the solo and small firm market is a really tough sell. I say this from my own personal experience and trying to sell a book on solo and small firm practice. I mean, there's people who complain $45, too much money, or, you know, uh, why do I need a book? Um, so it's, it's a very difficult market to sell. You know, in big law, if you're a tech company, if you can snag one, you know, two big law firms with 1,500 attorneys each, that's a pretty good start. But the effort required to sell, you know, 3000 solos uh, can, can be difficult. So I understand, you know, why initially there's a lack of focus, but it seems like that once these products are developed, the marginal cost of making them available to solos and smalls shouldn't really be that significant. And that was always one of the gripes I had against Westlaw and Lexus. They'd already had their development costs covered by large firms. And, you know, the, the rest is sort of like airplanes, giving the, the extra seats to, you know, cheap seats, selling them off to people. And I always felt like, there should have been a way for them to, you know, to offer, you know, smaller packages at lower rates for solos and smalls. And that's something that they never did. Um, so I think that there are opportunities for companies who are focused on the large firm market. I think they should 
look to the solo and small firm market, but you know, do it, 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 it's tougher to build a business that way. So um, I do understand the concerns and I'm not sure what the solution is. The problem with bar associations, I mean, Fastcase is a really good example of a company that leveraged the bar associations to, um, to get subscribers. But the problem with bar associations with other types of research, you know, with research, you know, I'd say like 80% or 90%, everybody could use a research tool. But with other types of products, I think that bar associations, you know, some people say, well, you know, our members don't want that. So why should we, you know, pay this company to make it a benefit? And then bar associations are so used to, or so accustomed to getting, you know, payoffs from technology companies that, they don't really have an interest in trying to uh, negotiate the best deals for their members. They just, you know, whoever is going to pay them money to, you know, to publicize their products, they, they would agree to. So it's, I, I think that the, the selling to the bar for certain products is, is a harder sell than, than you might expect. What technology needs uh, out there exist in the solo and small firm world that you think are not being met by the current market? What do you think um, you know, could be provided to solo and small firms uh, that could really uh, get them to the next level of competition with uh, larger firms or firms with more resources? That's, that's a very good question because – you know, even many times, even if there isn't a tool that's legal specific, there might be a more generic tool that could uh, could deal with it. But, um, you know, off the top of my head, I mean, I, I would say that, you know, up until recently, the document having access to easy cloud based document automation, I, I think that that's something that will be much more widely adopted, you know, now that it's cloud-based. And so I think that need is, is starting to be met. I think um, it would also, I guess the other types of tools would be, um, oh, uh, I, I, I think, you know, for something like e-discovery, a lot of solos and smalls, you know, the types of cases that they handle don't always involve e-discovery. And, you know, it's it's a market that really changes quickly and some of it is very complex. I know that there are some products for e-discovery that are available to um, solos and smalls. And I don't I don't know how significant a problem it is. And then I think the other thing that could be helpful is more um, seeing more practice specific case management tools. I know that like case peer is one that's directed towards personal injury lawyers or um, there's a family law uh, practice management tool that's geared towards family law attorneys. And so I think that sometimes with, you know, there's always a debate over whether you want a generic product or a specific one, but sometimes the specific products, you know, can give somebody with a specialized practice, you know, more power. I mean, if there were, I, I handle a lot of appellate cases and if there were a tool that was, you know, focused on, um, you know, practice management for appellate uh, systems, you know, that would easily, you know, put the joint appendices together and that would, you know, do the table of authorities and table of contents more easily and maybe 
in a cloud-based manner, um, you know, that, that would be something I would personally like to see. But I'm sure a lot of people like an employment law who are really focused on a particular practice area for them, a practice specific management tool could be useful. But, you know, again, I don't know what kind of market there is for that because it's such a narrow breakdown. Carolyn, as you know, this podcast is about rapid change in the legal industry. And one of the things that you've written about is, uh, you know, not just innovation and technology, but the adoption of new business models. I think you call them new law business models in the in the new economy. And you referenced that early on in our discussion uh, when you talked about how the relationship between attorneys and clients will likely change in the next 10 years or so. Uh, I want to ask you about your thoughts on these new law business models. And I want to uh, specifically bring you to the business models. And I want to ask you to describe these because I think they're, um, they're very uh, interesting titles and um, you know actual models. Uh, one is called Eyeball. Uh, the other is, is uh, Dry Bar. And the third is the Walmart model. <laughs> can, you, can you describe what these what these new law business models are, and uh, I'd also love to hear your thoughts on which model you think uh, has the brightest future going forward. Yes. Yeah, so the the eyeball law is you know when you become much more experienced in in a practice area, you can just eyeball a document and immediately see what's wrong with it. I, I look at a lot of uh, landowner leases and gas cases. I've looked at hundreds of them, and I can look at one in, in fifteen seconds. I can mark it up and tell you what's wrong with it. So um, usually I don't charge people for that. I, you know, I mean, if I represent them, I do it as we have different fee arrangements, but it's, it's almost it's not even worth my time to, to charge for that. But there could be, um, you know, attorneys who are in a situation where, you know, it figuring out a way to aggregate all of those little transactions could be useful for them or just being able to, you know, if, if they've got some downtime, you know, log into a platform. And if there are people asking about something, just, um, you know, just take a quick look at the document and, and see if it's, um, you know, if, if there are any changes that need to be made. The dry bar model, that's this is the most bizarre thing. I mean, they have, you know, these stories, these places where you just go and you can get your hair dried and styled. They don't wash it. They don't cut it. They don't do anything else to it. But um, and, and they're making millions, billions. I don't know. So in law, there's sometimes specialized transactions that a firm can focus on and just or, or a service can focus on just a narrow thing. I know that there are some attorneys who actually are doing something like that. They, it's the QR DO models. I, it's, it basically has to do with um, the qualified retirement accounts. When you get divorced, there's certain paperwork you have to uh, fill out if, if the retirement accounts are being separated. And there are some attorneys who focus just on doing that particular part of the transaction, or there's some attorneys who don't necessarily do estate planning, but they focus specifically on um, Medicare and Medicaid uh, types of issues to um, to make sure that you know assets are protected. So um, you know, so you can have lawyers who focus just on those things who can either market their service directly to the public or, you know, market it to a more generalized law firm. Um, and then the Walmart model, I guess, is just a model sort of like the one we talked about before, but run by law firms where it's really just a, a volume based practice uh, pro providing maybe uh, a more generic type of service or handling simpler matters 
and just doing them fast, um, figuring out ways to automate them and use uh, non, you know, paralegals or um, or assistants who are less expensive to just uh, process the cases and just, you know, um, make make up the transactions in volume. So would the so, would the Walmart model um, look maybe uh, kind of like? Uh, the large city DUI defense uh, firms, right? They only do DUIs, or maybe that's more like the dry bar model, actually, right? They only do DUIs, and they have a flat fee for them. Uh, you're in, you're out. Uh, that, that's the only thing they offer. Yeah, it's exactly like that. They also, it's actually with traffic tickets. There's an actually, I, I didn't even know that there was a way to make money off traffic tickets because, you know, some of them are very minor, but yeah, there's also like these, uh, these, uh, law firms that just focus on the traffic ticket. So yeah, I think that is kind of like the dry bar. It is just like a very, um, a very narrow niche type model. And sometimes the market is there for it. Um, you know, with obviously these traffic ticket or DUI lawyers are, are doing very well with their, um, with their narrow focus. Um, sometimes it could be an area that maybe, you know, would be a spinoff or, a, you know, a, of a larger firm if it wasn't self-sustaining. I want to ask a question about the the eyeball model. And, uh, you know, this is this is kind of going off of uh, what you uh, what you mentioned or what you implied when talking about the eyeball model. Could you imagine a, a business that is a platform that hosts documents, whether they're wills, wills and trust documents or business and corporation documents, and categorizes them so that attorneys on the other end can, as you mentioned, you know, kind of click on them and say, yeah, that will looks good, or you know, that business and corporation document looks complete. And it could be a very transactional, maybe $500 or $250 per form, you know, where the attorney doesn't really uh, know the client, the client doesn't know the attorney, but the fundamental work is being completed. Yeah, I think you could do something like that. I think there might be some instances where you might need to uh, know the client or be able to ask questions. I mean, again, going back to my example with the leases, there are these easements. There are some terms that are just, you know, complete that, that I know are illegal. It should just be taken out. But there are other things that could be a matter of preference. Like sometimes a client might want uh, advance notice before the company comes on their property. Others don't care. I wouldn't make an issue of, you know, including it in every single contract by default, but if it were important to somebody, I'd want to put it in there. So I might need some interaction, but yeah, but I think even just being able to go through and say, if it's okay, and maybe write up, you know, like write up a couple of notes or maybe ask some questions. I think that's, you know, something that could be helpful. Now I know that, you know, with artificial intelligence and, and, these uh, contract review services, there are some systems that um, are able to do that already. Um, but I, I'm not sure, you know, if they're advanced enough. And the other thing is, is, you know, they could write up a report, but not necessarily explain it. I mean, one thing with the eyeball law is it could be transactional, but I think there might be an a added value to having the human converse or at least explain it to the client to set it apart from just like an AI automated service because, you know, probably those tools will, will be there 
if if not already, it's it's so hard to keep track because they're, they're always improving. But um, you know, I, I know that they're not really available for really specialized contracts, but for simple ones, you can do it. But you know, it might be that in the future to keep that model viable, you need to have somebody you know actually talk to the client. I want to ask you another forward-looking question. Um, from your perspective as an expert in uh, solo and small firm law practice, what are what are some of the most encouraging trends you're seeing in the legal industry? Um, you know, from your perspective. You know, again, one of the trends is that there is um, there there's more general acceptance of the role that uh, technology plays and its importance to keeping solos and small sustainable, enabling them to provide a higher quality of service. I think another trend that is encouraging just in the solo and small space is that very, very, very slowly um, solo and small firm practice is losing its stigma. When I graduated from law school, I mean, a solo practitioner was somebody who couldn't find a job. They were a loser. And um, today, solo and small firm lawyers are often viewed as entrepreneurs or small businesses in, in a much more favorable way. And that's very important because they have, when solos and smalls have a better reputation, that transfers over to their clients. When you get, you know, if, if a big firm gets materials from a small firm and they look down on them, they're, they're you know, going to be tougher on them in terms of getting good results for the client. So I think that that's encouraging too. I think the other encouraging trends is just more flexibility. You know, when I, again, when I started my firm, I had children shortly thereafter. I, I pretended that the children didn't exist. I often worked from home and I never told anyone I was home. I pretended I was in my office. I mean, it was like it, those, those things were an embarrassment. Today, the work... Remote work, telecommuting, working from different places, it's, it's widely accepted. And that is really a very uh, positive benefit for, uh, for lawyers who are parents or who are taking care of their own parents or who have other family obligations and can't spend time in a traditional office space. Plus, it keeps costs down. So I think that the transition to this new model of working is also a very positive trend. That is a very encouraging. Uh, it's a very encouraging response, Carolyn. I really appreciate it. I really want to thank you for uh, being on the Modern Lawyer podcast. This has been a fascinating discussion. I knew that we would have much more to cover than we have time to cover it. So, thank you again so much for joining me today, Carolyn. Well, thanks for having me. I really uh, enjoyed talking about these things, and uh, I certainly welcome another opportunity to do so. American law practice is changing. Solo and small firm practice is no exception. Whether clients want their attorneys to specialize, do work more efficiently, or know local customs and practices, solos and small firms will continue to be where American law practice takes place. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you, and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag modernlawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.